and put an amen on that one. I love it. Thank you. Acts chapter 7. Y'all don't mind if we just kind of haul off and have church tonight, do you? Are you alright? Can do that? Y'all ate. Had your old pasta meal today. Put some carbs circulating around in you. We'll get you going here. See what we can do. Don't you love spaghetti dinners after church? Well, you're dressed nice. You fling that sauce around. <clears throat> I know our, uh, our carpet back there always loves them. That's for sure. Look in verse 39. This is uh, Stephen is preaching at the end of this message after he turns it particularly to dealing with what the Jewish folks did to these people. The very crowd he's preaching to will respond by rushing upon him, gnashing on him with their teeth, dragging him out of the city and stoning him to death. And he's recounting here in Acts chapter 7 much of the history of the nation of Israel. Verse 39, he says, To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, talking about Moses, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. Egypt has forever and is a picture of the unsaved world. Ungodly living. Things of the flesh. And uh, when God delivered His nation Israel, in fact, birthed that nation, well, a nation be born in a day, and it was, um, out, of, out of Egypt... That's exactly what God intended for them to do was to come out of Egypt. God said in one place, I brought you out to bring you in. He said, I brought you out of Egypt to bring you into the land of promise. The promised land in the Bible is not a picture of heaven. There are no Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, or any of the others that you fight when you get to heaven. You get to heaven, the fighting days are done. You don't have to. There never will be saved. There's, there's much land yet to be conquered. That's not it. So what's the promised land a picture of in the Bible? It's a picture of the, uh, the sold out, the consecrated, what should be the normal Christian life. A life that's sold, sold out for God. That's what it's about. A lot of people, I've seen a lot of people in my pastoring years and prior to the pastoring years, I've seen a lot of people get right up to the river, as it were, right up to going in to actually yielding their life to Christ. I'm not talking about going into a specific uh, service. I'm not talking about a specific vocation. I'm talking about where they just say, okay, Lord, this is yours. And uh, whatever I'm doing, like this morning's message said, Jesus will have the preeminence in it. And they'll get right up to that. And always there's battles and always there's things to scare them. And always there's things that seem insurmountable and they back up and don't go in and then they just wander and wander and wander until their carcasses drop. And uh, God doesn't design that for His people. But in this verse, in verse 39, it says in their hearts they turn back again into Egypt. Now you understand it's not something I'm making up. It's not something preachers have made up of the picture of Egypt and the world and that, and that sort of thing. But here's a question for you tonight, and that question is the title of the message. 
You are out of Egypt. Now I'm talking to saved people tonight. It's okay if you don't know the Lord. You're allowed to listen in and maybe God will give you Holy Ghost convictions that tonight could be your night of salvation. But here's the, here's the question. You are out of Egypt. You're saved. How many of you, that's your case? You're saved. You're not ashamed of that. All right. That was, I like it. The hands coming just like that. You're, uh, you're saved. You're out of Egypt. You belong to God. You're now His. You're secure in Christ. So here's the question. You're out of Egypt. Is Egypt out of you? That's the question. May I say to you, based on the Scripture, this Scripture which we read here, and a plethora of Scripture throughout the Old Testament, that most of the Israelites that came out of Egypt, Egypt didn't go out of them. That's where the trouble came in. You know... (laughs) There used to be a saying which was popular and it said, you know, it's, the church needs to be in the world, but when the world gets in the church, that's when there's trouble. It's a good statement, actually. Worldly actions, worldly music, worldly things. You say, why isn't that hardly heard anymore? Because the world got in completely. <laughs> you're out of Egypt. Hey, you're saved. And I, that means something to you. It should mean something to you. But is Egypt out of you? Let me give you some reasons why Egypt didn't get out of these Israelites. Just give you a few of them. Number one, they maximized the burdens of following God and minimized the blessings. In their speech, in their minds, in their attitudes, they maximized the burdens. They talked about the burden of having to follow God, talked about the burden of what they were going through, traveling from Egypt to the promised land. But they minimize the blessings. And anytime you start maximizing the burden of something and minimizing the blessing of it, somewhere in your heart you're looking at getting out of it. That's how it works. Let me show you scripture on that. Look back in the book of Numbers. We're going to look to several passages in the Old Testament. Look in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Now, as we're going through here, here's the proper mindset with the message. What you want to do is you want to look at this and you want to, you want to let the, the mirror of God's Word, I'm going to hold it up here to you. The mirror of God's Word. I love you. all looked up to see why I was holding up. Uh, the mirror of God's Word. I'm going to hold it up to you. And you look at that mirror, what the Word of God reveals to you. And you'll be looking for any of these traits. Not in somebody you know, but in yourself. Numbers chapter 11, look in verse 1. And when the people, what they did? Complained. Oh. It displeased the Lord. I think we learned this morning or had emphasized this morning that our purpose for existence and as God's people was to please God. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and His anger was kindled. You know what the word kindled means, don't you? It means you're starting a fire. You're getting a fire building. That, in this case, is not the fire you want building. His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them. This is wild. And consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Literally. 
quite an event. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. Been scary, wouldn't it? And he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. In the mixed multitude, that's a group that followed the Israelites out of Egypt. They're just a mix of all kinds of things. They followed them out of Egypt, followed along with them through there. In the mixed multitude that was among them, uh, by the way, that's always been a problem among God's people. Every congregation has a mixed multitude in it. A mixed multitude, sometimes the folks are not saved, which is wonderful. We want them to hear the Word of God. But they come in not knowing the things of the Lord. A mixed multitude of people who come in, but they're not, they don't believe the Bible is literally the Word of God. They come from a totally different mindset of what Christianity is supposed to be and what direction it's supposed to go. And, and they come in and they bring influence with them always. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again. They'd been complaining before the fire had burned. Now they start crying again, literally. And said, who shall give us flesh to eat? Now remember what we're saying here. They maximize the burden and minimize the blessing. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. They were used to a pretty uh, savory type thing. Uh, diet a lot of variety of flavor in it but now our soul is dried away there's nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes hmm. you do know that's miraculous food every single morning with the exception of Sabbath morning they saw the miracle that their God was actively providing for them every day. And by, by the way, here it'll tell it tastes like fresh oil, and that may not sound as good to you, but a fresh, good, clean oil has, has a good flavor to it, like a very good quality olive oil and that sort of thing. Most most everything we get a hold of in our country is degenerate as far as the food goes. It really is, you know. And, uh, you know, you have to pay $30 for olive oil that's basically tainted. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but in another place, it also describes their, the taste this way. It's like a wafer made with honey. That sounds pretty good. Don't I like that. Look what happens with it. It says there's nothing before us but manna before our eyes. They said our souls dried up over this. And the manna was as a coriander seed, and the color thereof is the bedellum. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills. This thing's useful. Or beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. The taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. And that's something God sent down their food on, by way of the dew. <laughs> I love that. But you know what they did? They said, our souls dried up. All we've got before us is this manna. Can you imagine this? I mean, our God that just split the Red Sea for us and sweetened the waters at Mara 
and sent ten plagues upon Egypt and destroyed the strongest standing army, certainly of that part of the world, and who saved us from uh, the death of the firstborn and who showed His hand so mighty. And now He's fed us every day with manna. I'll tell you what, you wouldn't believe what we have to go through. You wouldn't believe what it takes to be a Christian. You know what I'm not allowed to do? Well, I can't tell you why Egypt was still in their heart. And every chance they got, they tried to make a captain and somebody over them to head straight back to Egypt. Now, I may or may not say this again in the, in the message, but I don't want to miss it. What kind of reception do you think they would have gotten back in Egypt? You said well, they would have been back as slaves. That's true, but even worse. Do you remember the condition of the Egyptian people towards them after they left? They sent them out with a high hand, gave them all kinds of things. But then when they realized that their firstborn were dead and these people were gone, what did they do? They sent the army out to kill them. Yeah, that's going to be a home sweet home reunion when they get there. Huh. They maximize the burden and minimize you. Hey, you maximize the burden. I tell you what, you start maximizing the burden, you minimize the blessing, no wonder Egypt grows in your heart. I can hear the shifting sands of the desert around the pyramids in your heart. Number two, they forgot the rigors and penalties of bondage. The word rigor is a Bible word. It says that the Pharaoh made them to serve with rigor. It is a severity. It is a harshness of of labor. They were slaves. And it wasn't pleasant treatment they received. Another meaning of the word in that... uh, in the uh, in the mix of what it means when you try to try to explain it is the word broken up. That's the idea. Maybe families were broken up. Maybe their health was broken up. They forgot about that. Do you know that in one place Egypt is called the furnace of iron? They only remembered the pleasant points. They conveniently forgot just how nasty it was to be enslaved. Look in Exodus 16. Exodus 16. Hey, you're out of Egypt if you're saved, but is Egypt out of you? I heard a good statement this week. It said when when somebody shows you what they are, believe them. Good statement. Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God. And I won't even mention the sick irony of starting that that way. Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Really? Huh. When we sat by the flesh pots, when we did eat bread to the full, they're talking to Moses, for you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
sat by the flesh pots, ate bread till the full, their service was so arduous they had no rest. Their burdens were so grievous and their taskmasters were so severe that they were laying the lash on their shoulders as they worked, not just of the men, but of the women also and others. I would have never lived longer in slavery. I don't think I could have. I might have borne up under some of it myself. The first time I saw somebody lay a lash to my wife or something, they'd have killed me because I'd have got me a taskmaster. I've been there right there. He said, they'd have killed you. And they'd killed me going forward with my teeth growling. And, and you come out of Egypt. People, people they uh, forget the rigors, the penalties of bondage. They forget what it's like to be lost. Or an old preacher once said to a crowd, he said, trouble with some of you folks, you've been saved too long. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? You forgot the pit from which we're dead. Or maybe, and I think this is a wonderful thing, maybe you got saved in a young life and you just don't understand how good you got it. Because even if you didn't go off into all kinds of wild nonsense, you never knew the hollowness that comes as you get a little bit older, especially if your reasoning powers are keen at all. And you don't know the hollowness of not knowing and wondering what things are about and all that goes on and what it's like to be without hope and without God in this world. People go around and say, well, I'll tell you what, I had it made back then. Tell you what, things were a lot easier back then. Tell you what, man, back there, I remember back before I got saved, you know, and they'll talk longingly about before they knew Christ? You mean when you were going to hell? You mean when you were lost? You mean when you were an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, when you were at enmity with God? You mean back then? Hey, you're out of Egypt. Is Egypt out of you? Well, I'll tell you what. Well, I'll tell you what. People down at the bar, they'll give you the shirt off their back. I don't know about church people sometimes. I've heard ignorant statements like that. Really? <laughs> They may give it to you, but they'll ask back when they sober up. Are you really... <laughs> I speak jive too well not to understand what you're saying. Are you really trying to ever convince this preacher that the lost world without God is overall more caring more character, more merciful, and more gracious than God's people are. Well, I knew so-and-so in the church. Yeah, and the one reason why they stuck out so, so much is because it was, it was contrast to what everything else was. Oh, yeah, there's some caring people that are lost people. There's some thoughtful people that are lost people. There's some people of high character that are lost people. But even that is a lost and lonely existence. Well, I'll tell you, nah. you got out of Egypt. Is Egypt out of you? Are you? Hey, hey, look. Is all you can remember what's what's good, what's fun? 
Number three, why Egypt was still in them so strong, they saw what God did, but not who God was. Look in Psalm 103, the 103rd Psalm, please. They saw what God did, but not who God was. Some folks know there's something going on around them, but don't know who's doing it. Something happened in her household. It was a pretty interesting event. And I got tickled at our little granddaughter. She was standing there and I was talking to the kids about it, the, the grandkids. And she was just standing there with this really serious look on her face. And I said, well, this, is, this is what's happened here. And we don't quite understand how it's turned around to the good. She was standing there and she goes, that's God. That's God. He knew we'd be sad, so he took care of things. And then she just walked away. She was happy. I'm like, works for me. That's God. That's God. What's going on over here? What's happening over there? God. Don't miss God with all that's going on around you. Don't miss God. Psalm 103, and look please, if you will, in verse 7. He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. His ways. He knew the, the who and the why behind it. The Israelites saw the acts. The Israelites saw water turn to blood. Moses knew what was going on with it. The Israelites saw that their children didn't die when blood was put over the door and uh, the Passover was held and the lamb was slain. Moses saw the Redeemer God in it. So what? He said the wording there, preacher, the way it's worded, it says He made known His ways unto Moses, His accent to the children of Israel. So God was making distinction there. Why was that? You ready for the answer? Because Moses wanted it. You know, the Scripture does tell you that God will be found by those who seek Him. God made a statement once in my hearing and he was preaching. Lucy had annoyed me when he said it bothered me. I thought he'd missed the mark. And it bothered me. And I went checking it out. He was right. <laughs> that bothered me worse. Not that I had been incorrect in my initial assessment, but then I realized what he said was right. He's up preaching to a group and he said, do you know, do you know how close you are to God right now? I just left that question for a second. He said, as close as you want to be. Pardon me. He said, no, that's not true. I want to be alive. Yeah, he was right. I didn't like that statement at first. I really didn't. Oh, no, no. I want to... No, no, no. It'd be good if we didn't deceive ourselves. Not as close as I want to be. If I wanted to talk to God more, I'd talk to God more. 
if I wanted them in more of my thoughts, I'd take time to discipline my thoughts to think of. I choose what I put in my eyes. I may see something randomly because you're traveling around, whatever, but I choose what I put in and what I don't. I choose where my time's spent on, on what I'm consuming visually, auditorily. They saw what God did, but they not who God was. You wonder how people can seemingly believe the Bible, seemingly believe certain convictions in their life about life and actions and what they believe and what they believe a church ought to be and what they believe that God's house, what that ought to be in their life and all that. You, and they, they seem to believe all that and then they just throw it aside. It's just gone. They'll either drop the whole thing or they'll wander off into some kind of mess they would have never tolerated before. There's a lot of different things usually going on under the surface that you don't see. But you want fundamentally what it comes down to? They saw the axe and didn't see God. Because at some point it comes down to this, I don't want to hurt Jesus. He gave himself for me. He loved me. I don't want to hurt him. It just really comes down to that simple equation. You're out of Egypt. Was Egypt out of you? Then, not only did they maximize the burdens and minimize the blessing, not only did they forget the rigors and the penalties and only remembered the pleasant points, not only did they see what God did but didn't see the God who did it, but then also they did not value being set aside as God's precious people. And his peculiar people. They did not hold a value to being God's people. Please, if you're going to make the statement I'm getting ready to say, if you're going to get, can you please just not do it in my hearing? I'd like you not to do it all because it's ignorant. But at least don't annoy me with it. I, I, I'm, I, my next birthday, I'll be 59. 60 should follow after that. And I'm trying hard not to evolve into a grumpy old guy. So if you're going to make this ignorant statement, you just go off and make it yourself. I'd recommend not making it. But, please, we're saying about the unsaved world, well, we want them to know we're just like they are. You are? Something's wrong with you. Well, we want them to know we're no different than they are. You do? There's something wrong with you. I'm not the same as I was. If you're saying, well, I don't want them to think I'm better than they are. (laughs) They don't. Okay, reality check time. They don't. <laughs> I was hearing somebody say it was funny. They, they were going on about, well, sometimes why the unsaved world wonders why we do what we do and all this. And I thought, forgive my somewhat smart aleck uh, sense of observation, I thought, sadly, our life is so minimal in its impact that they're not really thinking about it one way or another. Most of our spirituality is so absolutely barren and lifeless 
that it does not cause anybody to stop and consider the difference. Part of the reason why Egypt was still in them was because they did not value being God's peculiar people. Look at a verse in Exodus chapter 19, and I mean, you talk about just laying it out here the way God has it. Exodus chapter 19. And boy, I want you to pay real attention to the end of verse 4. We're going to read verse 4. Our main emphasis is going on into verse 5. I want you to see the end of verse 4 very clearly. The Lord speaking to Israel said, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagle's wings, and brought you unto Myself. That's always God's design. Isn't that precious? Now therefore, if you will obey My voice indeed, and keep My covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto Me above all the people, for all the earth is Mine. He said, uh, Israel, you have an opportunity to be a peculiar treasure to the Lord. Will you go quickly over to the New Testament in the book of Titus? Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, this familiar passage leading into one which emphasizes this thing of being a peculiar people for the Lord. Peculiar not as in weird, but as in set aside as a, a distinct treasure and value to God. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, verse 11, hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, a, a willful act, and worldly lust, a, world, a willful act of denying that, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, that's a willful act, in this present world. That's now. Looking for that blessed hope that keeps us on track and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people Zealous of good works. The command to those who preach these things. Speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. They did not value being set aside as God's peculiar people. First Peter 2, I'm not turning to that, but also talks about God's people being a peculiar people unto Him. A peculiar treasure. Something that He values very, very highly. Why did they have Egypt in their heart? Because they did not value being set aside as God's people. That didn't mean anything to them. They lost the wonder of that. Be honest with you, I one thing I was refreshed by this past week is went up to the meetings in Columbus. I got to go on two days. Was looking around at a room full of God's people. 
and seeing people I hadn't seen in some months, it had been months, some I mean, year, some years. Know that they're serving God and wanting to serve the Lord. And in spite of their frailties, their failures, their setbacks, they were people who still had their face towards the Lord and still wanted to go forward. I just think that's awesome. I remember sitting in what they call church education class when I was in college. And my early <clears throat> years, you had to take four years of that if you were a pastoral major. And I was a pastoral major, and then my graduate degree also uh, uh, mandated within that degree that I was in church ed there also. And I remember sitting there, and we had, for some of those semesters, it was the largest class, 750 men in that room. Ours was a very large Bible college. It's by far the largest independent Baptist college of, uh, that, that has existed, period. Um, and we were matriculating close to 2,000 students a year at a private Bible college. That's, that's a large Bible college. Small city unto itself. 750 men. And I used to look around in that room and, and uh, I've always... Can kind of feel what's happening with the crowd a lot. It's 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 to me. It's like a tuning fork experience. Speaking is too. It's kind of kind of amazing. You pick up on it. It, it. it comes towards you. And I remember sitting in that room, brother Keith, and looking around. And I remember looking at men who were working all night and trying to be in Bible college. We had a lot of uh, married men in college at that time, which was unique to that school too. And you had men with families and they were working and they'd come from all over the country and all over the world and they were there trying to listen and writing notes and learning how what they should be doing as a pastor and how they ought to be taking care of the house of God. And I looked around that room and sometimes I was overwhelmed with it to see a gathering of men who had answered a call to preach. Some of them had walked away from lucrative jobs. Some of them, whatever they were doing... They had a singular thing. And I know there were duds there like anywhere else. I could give you names. But they were, but the thing of it was, the, I mean, the vast majority, they wanted to serve God. They wanted to tell people the gospel. They had dreams of going and pastoring, dreams of going on the mission field, dreams of serving on the staff. And they wanted to serve God and they were paying a price to do it. You couldn't get, uh, there wasn't anything such as uh, some kind of government thing to pay for your bill. You paid your own way and you paid every semester and there were no student loans for it. You worked and you did it. And you know, it's amazing some of those men still on the field, still serving God. And from that mid-80s generation, there were a good number that went out for decades and stayed at it. You know, there is something about having to bust your knuckles and learn to work. It makes you sick. Have a little bit. And all of us learned as much on our jobs as we did in college. Man, raised roofing was some kind of experience. Or maybe, although I'm Baptist, I don't believe this doctrinally, it could have been purgatory and I got released. I'm not really sure. You'd have to see that area to understand that. But my point of it, I felt honored to be among that group. I felt honored to be among a group of people who at that time in our nation had come from all across the nation, 
sold what they had, got rid of, and, and came and said, we just want to serve God. Lived in, in, in substandard housing or were crammed together a bunch in, in an old flimsy dorm that wasn't anything palatial or fancy and just going at it to serve God. You said, why would you do that? Because it was part of something we wanted to do and serve the Lord. Let me tell you, I am, I am amazed today to be a part of God's people and, and it's a wonderful thing to be counted as His people. That needs to be valuable to you. You want to fit in with everything. You want to blend in with everything. You follow every fashion that comes along. Every little uh, hussy that wiggles herself across your screen. You want to dress or undress like her. Every little uh, half sodomite looking fella that gets up and does something. Or every pervert that can run around and play some kind of sport. You want to model yourself after Hey! You're out of Egypt. It's time Egypt gets out of you. Why? Because this stuff of not valuing who we are in God is a serious business. And it's a disgrace to the Lord. They did not value being set aside as God's peculiar people. What else? Well, the reason that Egypt was still in them was they had learned to get their identity from Egypt instead of God's people. You know, when they went to make that golden calf, we're going to read about that in a minute. How many of you have heard at least about the golden calf? All right. How many of you know what that's about? I'm not going to, all right. You just know the name of somebody? That's fine. You're going to know in a minute. Before you leave here tonight, you're going to know more than you knew when you came in. So there you go. How to charge your tuition. Um, they, they got their identity. You know what they did? Those boys, all the little kids and everything, were breaking off those golden earrings to make that calf. Where'd they get that? A bunch of boys wearing them old golden earrings. Well, Egypt was one of the places. Ishmaelites too were where it came from. It was always a sign of bondage. You know, in the Hebrew law, if a servant came to a master and he was single when he came to the master, and he got a wife and had some children, when his day of emancipation came, because they were only allowed to keep their servants for a certain length of time, he could go out, but it was within the law for the for the wife and children and such to stay under the authority of the master. But that man, he could declare that he loved his master, he loved his wife, and loved his children, and he didn't want to go out from his master, and he didn't want to be separated from his children. And they would take him over to a door. You read about it in the Old Testament. And they would take an awl, which was an A-U-L. It's a little, it's a drill type thing. And they use hand. And they would drill a hole through his ear. And what that was, then from that point on, he said, I've declared that I'm permanently going to be the servant to my master. And in one form or another, that thing's always been about that stuff. Those Ishmaelites, and those Egyptians, and they were blinged up. They were, could tell difference. They got their identity from Egypt. They became known. They had 430 years to dwell among the Egyptians. But it's interesting, the Egyptians never accepted them either. They used them, they exploited them, they built treasure cities because of both the knowledge and the building ability of the Jews. Those Egyptians didn't build those treasure cities. Those Jews built those treasure cities. And when they did that, they still despised them and wouldn't, wouldn't fellowship with them. 
You know, if you're actually saved, you've got a real conundrum on your hands. You want to live like the world, act like the world, dress like the world, undress like the world. You want to do all this. Uh, you know what it is? You don't fit there. You don't fit. And if you fit perfectly, you got a problem. Deeper than the surface uh, symptoms. And you don't fit among God's people and you feel uncomfortable there. You can't go through a song service without looking at your stupid watch. Now, I'm not talking about you're checking time. You're checking text. You can't sit in a song service and sing. You've got to sit there and look down at the at thing and not sing. I don't have a good voice. Oh, horse feathers. You're not not saying because you don't have a good voice. You're not saying because you can't put your heart into the songs of God. But you get real. It's about time to get serious about something. And the problem is when Egypt's in you. You don't like hot preaching. Egypt is in you. You don't fit. Don't you just realize if you're God's people, you have, a, you have something to be very glad about? What is it about living with your life yielded to a loving, merciful, wonderful, wise God? What is it about living your life for that God that you find so terrifying? And how is it that you play around with an adversary that wants to devour you and you aren't even bothered by that. You're scared of yielding to God, but you play around with an adversary. You know, every now and then it's your preacher's job just to stand up and tell you in the name of the Lord that what you're thinking doesn't make a lick of sense. Egypt they were out of Egypt. But Egypt wasn't out of them. They got their identity from Egypt. They wanted to be accepted by everybody. I remember watching a fellow as he started to slide off into no man's land. Unfortunately, that's where he went. He ended up totally messing himself up. But I remember in private conversation, I remember in statements that were made, this desire to be accepted by the intellectual elite. Now, I understand something. I've got to say this, Brother Trey. I understand, unfortunately, among the ranks of Baptist preachers and Baptist people, sometimes there's people who glory in their ignorance. They get up, you know, preach a whole sermon about how spiritual it is that I'm stupid, you know. <laughs> that train's leaving without me. I, there's no virtue or value in that. But I'm talking about this appetite to be acceptable in basic ways that Bible belief would not allow me to be acceptable to their thinking. In other words, I would have to abandon what I actually believe about the Scripture to embrace what they, they put out. Got their identity from Egypt. Well, we'll give your church a stamp of approval. I don't care. I want, I want approval from heaven on this place and that's it. 
That's it. And by the way, if you ever, <laughs> you get down to seriously thinking about what that means, you're going to find out that's a big job. We're going to have to walk in humility and we're going to have to have some good sense. Because last time I checked, God's a really good businessman and he's very picky about how we conduct ourselves and our conduct towards others. So if we're actually going to be pleasing to the Lord, we can't be this loosey-goosey, just treat everybody every which way and act like we don't have any sense about things. Then let me say to you, they had become accustomed to a fleshly sort of worship. Their music sounded like war from a distance. Hey, listen, and I know this isn't the only good song, but it, the point I'm making you'll get. You, you can't make amazing grace. You can't make be still my soul. You can't make, you can't make uh, 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 great is thy faithfulness. You can't make any of those songs sound like war no matter what volume you play them at. Not the way they're made. Now you jive them around, you can. And there's a few things more jarring to the senses and more repugnant to the spirit than having good godly words from a good godly song set to, uh, to worldly, ungodly music. Amen. That's like watching a prostitute come down an aisle in a white dress. It don't match. The preacher, that's stark. Oh yeah, ain't it? And it is. It don't fit. God, God's church is called His His bride. She's a bride. She's not a floozy. She's a bride. We need to. We need to. We need to understand it and be glad about it. Be glad we can be that way. Exodus thirty-two. Several of you earlier, you raised your hand, said you've heard of the golden calf, but you really don't know what that is or what that's about was not surprising to me. There were several of you in that category because I know at any given time throughout our congregation, there are people learning different parts of the Bible and such. And I've committed myself, and I mean that by time and trying to be yielded and putting more time in than I ever have in the ministry uh, of preparing to feed you so that our people can become more and more strengthened in the Scripture. And I also want to lead you to an appetite for the Bible. I'm making no pretense about what I'm trying to do as a pastor. I want to lead you towards an appetite in the Bible. I want to lead you towards a love for the Word of God. That one thing, if however many more years God gives me to minister here, you know, I've been here almost 31. I'm 58. I probably, honestly, and, and I know this bothers some people when I say it, but honestly, I probably don't have over 50 or 60 more good years in me. And uh, <laughs> that's like optimism up here, amen? Uh, you're like, you haven't had any good... Okay, I get it. Um, but, the, but the thing of it is, I, I really, I, 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 if I can, if my greatest uh, impact other than you coming to know the Lord personally if it can be you having a love for the Word of God, I will consider what I'm doing here to be very successful. Because if you have a love for the Word of God, an appetite for the Word of God, you'll keep searching things out and you'll keep growing. I want, I want, I want, to, I want to help grow you to a point where your dependency is far less on me than what it is. Where your dependency should be on the Word. I still want to fulfill what I'm supposed to be doing as your pastor, but 
I want you to follow God and you to know Him and you to grow and you to find out. I want you to know what it's like to find things from the Word of God and see that thing that helped you that today and have God show you something while you're reading and then that day or in a few days somebody has a need and you just read and you say, look what I just found. This will help you. I want you to know what that's like. That's my heart. That's my passion. That's why I'll leave here late tonight, get back in here early tomorrow morning. That's why I work the six days a week. That's why I put the tithe. I, I want you to love your Bible. Why? You get that scripture in you, they'll get Egypt out of you. My heart as I'm preaching, I'm being stern with you at some points tonight, and I'm not apologetic for it. Because my heart is I know the danger of I know how destructive it is. Someone's got to stand and say, Stop! Don't! Don't go down that road! Don't go down that road! Well, these children of Israel, they got used to fleshly worship. It's one of the things that will try to affect you most. Your church is odd within the city. It's going to get more odd. Not that we're doing anything different, but everything's just wandering off. And my wife and I, we're not gone a lot. Probably not as much as we should be, truthfully, for us to remain healthy in the long haul. But the, uh, but the fact is that we travel, we're just like you all, we're trying to find a church for midweek service. Now, I'll tell you why. That's a trip. Because their sign and their website may, <laughs> may tell you it's a King James Bible, or, you know, been, been back to church. Man, you get there, it can be about anything. Or my favorite, you call them and they, oh, we aren't having Wednesday night church anymore. I remember one time we were up in uh, the Berlin area and we were looking around for a place and it's been a good number of years ago. And I tell you, it was my wife, finally she got me by the arm. I'm, I'm on the phone, I'm driving, she's, she's by the arm and that's saying, gear it down, you're in attack mode. This is when gas had jumped up over $2 a gallon. Remember that? And we thought the apocalypse had hit. And uh, I guess it'd be according to what you're driving. Um, but I called and place after place, Brother Chris, it said, well, we, we're not having Wednesday service anymore. Here's, and here's things I was getting, honestly. Well, our people, our people just weren't as interested anymore. But not very many of our people were showing up. And finally, I mean, I'm at boil point on this thing. And I call and I'm talking to the pastor. Hey, when's y'all's midweek service? Well, I know we advertise it. But you know, with gas so expensive, our folks can't really afford to come in. And I just lost it on the phone. I did. My wife got hold of me. I'm like, what is the matter? I said, you the preacher? Yeah, I said, what is the matter with you? I said, you're a preacher. You're a Baptist preacher. I said, your people drive to Walmart when they went to. They go there. I said, that's no more than an excuse for somebody who doesn't want to have church and is rolled up. Literally. My wife said, honey, honey. And I'm like, and have a blessed day in the Lord. You hang up. Yeah. People have just gotten used to any old excuse. Exodus 32, let me show you this. Verse 6. 
It says, And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That's is interesting because Moses is up on the mountain of God getting the Ten Commandments. But he was gone a long time, 40 days. During that time, the people got this idea in their heart and mind and they made this idol. It was looked like a calf. It was made out of gold. Hence the term golden calf. And they made it. Let's see what happens here with it. <laughs> Look what God says to Moses. To me, this is priceless. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt. You know God's angry when he did that. He tells Moses, did you see what your people are doing? This is like the ultimate parental thing. Your son, no, your son, you know, your daughter, um, have corrupted themselves. We blame way too much on the devil, don't we? They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf. Where were they got that idea? That's an Egyptian thing. made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. No wonder God was saying, Moses, they're your people because they're saying this golden calf that they just made is what brought them out of the land of Egypt. I mean, you think about that. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone. Moses is apparently... Pleading with the Lord. Now therefore let me alone. By the way, Jesus is a prophet like unto Moses. That stood between us and the wrath of God. Now therefore let me alone. That my wrath may wax hot against them. And that I may consume them. I'm going to finish the verse. But God said, you said, you all have been to a point where you just told somebody, don't try to talk me out of it. I'm angry, I want to be angry, leave me alone. I mean, you... God was there. I mean, judgment's getting ready to roll down that mountain. And he said to Moses, I will make of thee a great nation. By the way, he could have done that and still fulfilled his promise to Abraham because the lineage would not have been broken. So there's not some kind of vain threat going on here. Not that God would ever make one. And Moses besought the Lord his God. Can you imagine being standing between that kind of divine anger and people who you know are totally messing up and said Lord why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people don't you love that God had just said your people Moses and now Moses says God they're your people which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand then look what he says wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. He said, what are the Egyptians going to say when you kill these people you brought out? God, this, is, this doesn't match what you wanted to do. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give and to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he had thought to do. 
unto this people. Then what happened? Moses turns and went down from the mount. Pretty amazing. Watch it. And the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. Those are the Ten Commandments as we call them. The tables were written on both their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. That first time they were written, God actually did it with his own finger. He wrote with his finger before, didn't he? Can you think of three times when God wrote with his finger? Tables of stone on the wall, Belshazzar, and when Jesus wrote in the dust. That's three of them. There may be more. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, now I'm talking about why Egypt hadn't gone out of them, why we read the verse that says in their heart they turned back time again to Egypt. Why? Because look at what they were used to with worship. He heard the noise of the people. They're down there worshiping. As they shouted, he said unto Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. Their worship service sounded like some kind of blaring concert. Sounded like some kind of, a, some kind of a warfare going on. 